0: Welcome to School of Movies. (laughs) Welcome back to the Disney specials, guest starring Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. This episode comprises the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, The Rescuers, The Fox and the Hound, and The Black Cauldron. But first, a little more history to give you all context. was perhaps the darkest time for the house of mouse the empty space left behind by the studio's creator its heart and driving force was impossible to fill the budgets for these films began lowering by the year aristocats in 1970 commanded the same four million dollars as the jungle book although it has made only a quarter the amount of mobley's adventure over the years robin hood in 73 was 1.5 million rescuers in 77 1.2. Something needed to be done. Then in 1979, Don Bluth left Disney to form his own studio, taking with him Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy, and 11 to 16 of their co animators in a move that horrified and dispirited the rest of Disney. It's hard to argue with the fact that Bluth was dissatisfied with the way Disney was run at the time, setting out to make films closer to the ink and paint heyday of the company. Unfortunately, the move really badly damaged Disney, depriving them of 17% of their animators, and they made some rash decisions as a result. Much of the next few years' output between the Bluth Company – I love that they're called the Bluth Company – and Disney was interlinked. They were rivals and competitors and made decisions based on what the other did – Disney attempted to come back swinging in 81 from their low-budget fare with an all-new animation style featuring beautiful painted backdrops for The Fox and the Hound. This picture cost 10 times as much as The Rescuers, 12 million dollars, and disastrously made 10 million less than the cheaper film did in return. Meanwhile, the Don Bluth company put out The Secret of Nim* in 82, which cost 7 million dollars and only made 14. They filed for bankruptcy and then they made Dragon's Lair in 85, which was successful until the arcade business crashed. In even more desperation, Disney sunk $44 million into the Black Cauldron, a horrendously compromised attempt at fantasy filmmaking which didn't even make half that amount back and is now a shadowy relic that contemporary Disney would rather we all forgot. Bluth teamed up with Spielberg in 86 and put out An American Tale, which was at the time the highest grossing non Disney animated movie ever. So you can see the difference there. The most expensive animated film ever, only made half its budget back, highest grossing non Disney animated movie ever. Completely different results the Lamb before time made even more although all dogs go to heaven was the beginning of another inexorable decline for the bluth company as by 1989 disney took back the animation crown but more on that later now you may notice an emerging pattern here almost every animated movie from these two studios successful or otherwise made between 1970 and 1989 involved either talking dogs talking cats or talking mice from the Disney and Bluth films, I count five with dogs, five with mice, six with cats, and three with other kinds of anthropomorphic talking animals or dinosaurs. Of the 12 movies they put out between them, only one didn't focus on talking animals, and that was the aforementioned disaster of the Black Cauldron. And that's not counting Gummy Bears, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and Tailspin. It was, in effect, not a time for animating people. And it's very possible that part of the secret of the 90s Renaissance was moving away from the safety of these creature features. In 1984, Michael Eisner became the CEO of Disney, bringing with him Jeffrey Katzenberg. A lot of people in the know scorned these men for what they turned the company into, but it's key to bear in mind that as soon as the Black Cauldron was out of the way, they started changing things around in a manner which led to the 90s Renaissance. Basil, the Great Mouse Detective, or simply the Great Mouse Detective if you're in the States, cost $14 million, which was cut down by $10 million by Eisner, and it made back $38 million. But now at least Disney were heading back in the right direction. And finally, Oliver and company somehow managed to net them $74 million, convincing the world that Disney was still relevant and paving the way for their finest hours. On to lighter things, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh.
1: For the first time in a feature-length cartoon, all your favourite Pooh characters. Share all their enchanting adventures. In Walt Disney Productions The Many Adventures of hip Winnie the Winnie Pooh. The it's baby. everyone's favorite bedtime story brought to life. What's all
2: that stomping
3: and singing and silly synony- shenanigans? Sh- <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Robin! Silly old bear. for Winnie the Pooh.
0: It's the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. It's uh, great! Right. Narrated by Sebastian Cabot. He, of Bagheera fame. Yep. Uh, Now, um, when me and Matt Wetter did uh, a year of Disney and and basically just watched every single Disney film, I think it was one per week, uh, we were giving our our different reviews. This is where we started to really diverge because he really didn't like Winnie the Pooh, and I don't know why. I cannot understand why people don't like Winnie the Pooh, uh, whether, you know, adults, kids. I remember when I was uh, younger a lot of people would snort derisively about Winnie the Pooh Brits and say they Americanized it. And watching it, just so much of what was in the books is preserved. And it's very, very important to note that the Americans at the time had not heard of Winnie the Pooh. This brought it to America, kept the book alive, brought it worldwide fame and legendary status. I mean, that, I can't see anything bad about this version of Winnie the Pooh.
4: I think when people say that about Winnie the Pooh, they're not actually talking about this Winnie the Pooh. Um,
0: Oh, Matt didn't like this one.
4: Oh, even after...
0: And he likes light and fluffy things. Okay.
4: Well, that's fair enough then. I mean, I think because there was, was there not, right, I could be imagining this completely, but was there not a TV series of Winnie the Pooh?
0: There was. I sang it last time. Pooh Bear, Winnie the Pooh Bear. Remember? Oh, yeah. Pooh yeah. Bear, Winnie the Pooh Bear. Looking
5: for fun. Chasing some honeybees.
4: That's the one that when I, I realised that was the Winnie Pooh, Winnie the Pooh that I hated.
0: You can't call him Winnie Pooh. No, I
4: know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slip of the tongue. Um, but, I mean, I would say that, that um, this and Robin Hood and the rescuers we've been talking about why some of these films that you actually really like don't grab me and and i didn't you know i haven't taken to them at all and i think i've clicked why because when i was
0: you don't have a soul no 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 no, no. it's
4: it's not that (laughs) basically when i was about probably between about the ages of uh, nine and 13 or so there was a selection of almost like disney light that just got spammed on the TV whenever they wanted to put a kids film on they would pick a Disney from this period they're not that great they're not that you know they're not that fantastic looking it's the the stuff that in my head when I think the Disney I had around when I was a kid it's these and I think that's why I've never been that enamoured of Disney until I started really getting into the ones that kicked it up a notch
0: the 90s. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you think about it, in our lifetime, we had um, Fox and Hound, Black Cauldron, which I'd never even heard of in my childhood. They just, they really hushed that one up. Basil and Oliver and Company before Little Mermaid came along. That, that's four Non-entities of films, for me. Yeah,
4: exactly. And for some strange reason, the films that, that now, watching back on, on Blu-ray, some of the really early ones, like Pinocchio, like Dumbo, like Cinderella, mm. I never saw them as a kid. They, they never seemed to be on TV. It always seemed to be this half-hearted, not quite really what Disney ought to be, that mm. was, you know, commonly able to get hold of. It right. must just
0: have been cheaper.
4: Well, I was just about to say, I'm guessing it's because the rights were less expensive, but it's frustrating that that was always my idea of what Disney was.
6: I mean, I love everything about this. That's my review.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And you're crazy if you don't like Winnie the Pooh. That's my review.
6: <laughs> it's, no, it just completely feels like, just between the narration and all these great like, classic Disney voices, it just feels like a bedtime story like put onto film. And uh, yeah, I just love it. It's super charming, cute. Like I would. It's like if when I had kids, this would absolutely be something I was showing them all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. This film is pretty much the last hurrah for a lot of Disney voice actors. Actually, mm. like uh, Sebastian Cabot, who was who uh, narrated it and was Bagheera and Sir Ector and Sword in the Stone, died like the year it was released. Oh. Uh, Junius Matthews, who played Rabbit and Archimedes, died the year after that. Barbara Liddy, who played Kanga and Meriwether and Lady, Lady. died the year after that. Uh, The voice of Eeyore Eeyore was actually the only vocal performance that Ralph Wright ever did. I think he was a Disney story guy. And Pooh was the last Disney performance Sterling Holloway gave too. Which is a pretty great character to end with, I think. Because I love his Winnie the Pooh voice.
4: I'd certainly say that's his immortalization.
6: Absolutely. And Pooh rolled and rolled,
7: until he was black all over.
3: There, now. (laughs) Isn't this a clever disguise? What are you supposed to be? I'm a little black rain cloud, of course. (laughs) Really old fair. Now, would you aim me at the bees, please? (laughs) Careful, poo. Hold on tight. Yes. Four. Yes. Three. Yes. Two. Yes. One. I'm just a little black rain cloud hovering under the honey tree. I'm only a little black rain cloud pay no attention to little me. Oh, everyone everyone knows that a rain cloud. Never, Never eat funny, funny. No, no, not a nip. I'm just floating around over the ground, wondering where I will drip. <laughs> Christopher Robin, I think the bee's S-U-S-P-E-C-T something. <laughs> Perhaps. After their honey. Well, it may be that you never can tell with bees.
6: This is also the point where the um, the animation department's nine old men were quite well on in years. Uh, some of them had already retired. Uh, one or two of them, I think, might have actually already passed by this point. Um, and they had realized earlier in the '70s that they really needed to start bringing some new people in. And so Eric Larson had been working throughout the decade to train up a lot of the young blood that was going to be taking over. And some of them would have been working on on some of these, I think, along the way. Uh, Guys like Henry Selleck and John Musker, Tim Burton, John Lasseter, Brad Bird, uh, and a lot of the animators that would see Disney through the 90s renaissance later. Yeah.
4: So does that mean, then, that this was around about the point where not only was Walt gone, but now... The people who had worked most closely with him yeah. were starting to go, and so his influence even was disappearing.
6: Definitely, I, I mean, I think
4: that would explain a lot. It
6: would some, it would somewhat. I mean, throughout all of these decades, and pretty much up until the point when all the new Hollywood blood comes in around the Black Cauldron era, a near constant refrain inside the studio is "What would Walt have done?" And I think that probably persisted among a lot of these a lot of these young guys as well because i mean they were all disney fans they were hungry to be a part of this studio and a part of what they'd grown up loving so much so what like what walt would have done would have been very important to them as well don bluth included they they
4: wouldn't necessarily have known what walt would have done somebody who's actually worked directly with him can make an educated guess somebody who's only ever known his output
0: or it's very talk true to people who knew him yeah I've got to get it second hand and third hand
4: mm, yeah yep. so that yep. that could explain some of the dilution I mean I have to say one of the things I really love about this um, this Winnie the Pooh is the the um, the way they play with the idea of literary adaptation and putting that into animation. So all the scenes where they're literally dancing across the page and mm. the one where you see Tigger catapulted up above the page of the book and you've got a live action background mm. as mm. it falls back down again and things like that. I love yeah. those. They look brilliant. I to four,
0: four. For, for me, it's, it's little things like when Piglet finds out that, uh, owl has found his house and set up shop in it and it doesn't say, but that's my house. He just goes, oh, okay. Well, he doesn't sort of walk off in a sort of okay. I guess you just take my house. Where he he, he he tries to put a brave face on it and smile and be and be happy for Owl having a new house. And then you know when, when Pooh says you shall live with me, it's it's a heart melting moment. I know it sounds really really simple, but when it comes down to it, it's somebody being able to. It's it reminds me of um, Emma Thompson in Love Actually. Do you know that bit? Yeah, yeah where, yeah. where she has to kind of swallow who she is in order to smile for her her family
4: when the kids come in. Yep. Yeah, I know exactly the point you mean.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's little moments like that, and it's very episodic, and it's it's full of little things, and a lot of them are, ju- are just throwaway, and uh, some are, uh, are more entertaining than others. There's a lot of sing-songs, and you've got a lot of Sherman stuff in there, but it never really develops into long songs. They're all about 40 seconds long tops. The Tigger song that everyone loves so much is about 16 seconds long, um, but it's... How best to put it? I grew up. That's I grew up. When I was a little tiny child, I was read Winnie the Pooh, and and loved it. And only got to see glimpses of this occasionally. Uh, but when I, I must have seen it on video, I think uh, my my babysitter brought it round, and I was absolutely entranced at the fact that they'd actually managed to bring these characters out of the book, give them voices, give them very vibrant personalities, make them very distinct from one another, and. Uh, convey these stories in the most charming accessible way so I loved it when I was that age and then I, I, th- I think just there must just never have been a time in my life when I was like I don't like Winnie the Pooh anymore I've grown up from it because that's what the whole book is about when you get to the end and Christopher Robin's going off to uh, uh, to big school it's you know He's technically supposed to put away these childish things. And so you could interpret the entirety of the Winnie the Pooh story as Christopher Robin imagining all of these uh, adventures happening in a desperate bid to enjoy these last few hours of childhood before he gets carted off to be a man. And that's incredibly powerful stuff. The last chapter, which they added to these, um, these three vignettes, uh, for the, uh, the cinematic version of this, um, is, is really powerful. I agree. For me.
6: I've but, never actually seen that last little vignette thing. I think I saw all of these different shorts kind of individually, uh, like on individual little cassette tapes down the road. So seeing them all kind of join together in that last bit I'd never seen was actually a real surprise and really pleasant one too.
0: I can understand people coming to this cold, sitting through it and just seeing what's happening on screen. It could get very dull. But then, I mean, if you, uh, we're in the minority of people who absolutely love Winnie the Pooh. How much did the um, Winnie the Pooh film make? Let's check, shall we? That's the, the more recent version which they banked on. Everybody flocking back to see because they would want to see this kind of animation. Cost thirty million, made forty-four
6: million. The 20 Somewhat one. their own fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they buried the bloody
0: thing. It's they released. Like they were ashamed of it.
6: They released it on the same day as the final Harry Potter film. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. What? So Dead in the water.
0: They
4: do understand that the kids who've got little brothers and sisters, the parents are not going to take the little brothers and sisters to go and see Winnie the Pooh, and They're then the older kids will go and see Harry Potter, right? Uh.
6: You you would think. I don't know why on earth they would do that. but and You'd think, well, maybe it'll
0: be rediscovered on DVD and Blu-ray, if they release the Blu-ray in the UK, which they haven't. Uh. We'll we'll get to that film later. I don't love that film as much as I love this. I do love that that film exists, though, and that that's the way they handled that film. And so we come to the last chapter, in which Christopher Robin
7: and Pooh come to the enchanted place, and we say goodbye.
3: Goodbye? Oh, no, please, can't we go back to page one and do it all over again?
7: Sorry, Pooh, but all stories have an ending, you know. Oh, bother. Yes, the time had come at last. Christopher Robin was going away to school. Nobody else in the forest knew exactly why or where he was going. All they knew was it had something to do with twice times and how to make things called A B C's, and where a place called Brazil is. Pooh? What do you like
3: doing best in the world? What I like best is me going to visit you and you saying how about a smackerel of honey? (laughs) I like that too. But what I like best is just doing nothing. How do you do just nothing? Well, it's when grown-ups ask, what are you going to do? And you say nothing. And then you go out and do it. I like that. Let's do it all the time. You know something, Pooh? I'm not going to do just nothing anymore. You mean never again? Well, not so much. Pooh, when I'm away just doing nothing, will you come up here sometimes? You mean alone? Just me? Yes. And Pooh, promise you won't forget me ever? Oh, I won't, Christopher. I promise. Not even when I'm a 100? How old shall I be then? (laughs) Ninety-nine. Silly old bear.
7: Wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on top of the forest, a little bear will always be waiting.
6: And it should be said that Winnie the Pooh is still, in terms of merchandising, one of the biggest like Disney yeah. lines and products. I, I don't know the, I can't remember the precise order of uh, which ones are like the bigger earners. It's like Cars at the top. Car,
0: the, it's
6: not quite at the top. I think right. it's. I, I can't. It cars oh, is isn't it at the pr- top, but it's like in the top three. Count the as the as princess line, as yeah, as is one. definitely one of the front runners. The kind of Mickey Mouse general original Disney character, gotcha. kind of Mickey Goofy stuff is up there. Uh, the uh, yeah car stuff definitely up there and, and winnie, the, and winnie is the pooh surprisingly
0: popular as well and I'm winnie the pooh stuff that.
6: is way up there as well because it's like there's tons of very young kid like uh like baby clothes and uh just baby a toys of, and stuff like a that a lot
4: of lyra's stuff when she was tiny was um winnie was pooh, winnie yeah. the pooh themed and i think that's another one of the things that i like about it is that it's it's not aggressively gender marketed if you you look at the Winnie the Pooh stuff, it's all very gender neutral. It all tends to be yellows and oranges and, um, you know, colors that aren't specifically going to be pinned to boys or girls. And they don't seem to be trying to push it particularly one way or the other. It's just the younger children.
6: Yeah, which I like. It's nice. Like, given well, that you, a lot of the other means you can, is very...
4: You can obtain it all with impunity before you know whether you're having a boy or a girl.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And given that the or other two popular lines are princesses and cars, which are definitely very like marketed and sold mm-hmm. very divided across the gender lines, it's nice yeah. have it that they have that the young that their youngest facing line is could very much be targeted to anybody.
5: Yeah.
0: You try finding a uh, Robin Hood soft toy in the average Disney store. Oof. Maybe better luck. Out of luck. <laughs> or indeed, you know what you'd give to the average small child, which is a hat and a real bow and arrow. <laughs> There's nothing wrong that can come of this Well done Robin <laughs>
6: <laughs> Anyway
4: haven't seen many Aristocats toys
6: Or Rescuers for that matter mm.
0: Speaking of
1: At last After four years in production Comes the crowning achievement In Disney animation and storytelling The Rescuers
5: Look out Here she comes!
1: A bold new
2: adventure.
5: Where is she? Where is she? You get down there and find the big diamond or you will never see that teddy again! That poor little girl.
1: We gotta find her and help her. Meet a cast of captivating new Disney characters.
2: This emergency meeting of the International Rescue Aid Society is now in session. As you know, our society has never failed to answer a
1: call for help.
5: Oh, Mr. Chairman, please. Please, may I have this assignment?
1: Bernard and Bianca, two secret agents on a date with destiny. And Orville, the albatross, an airline pilot on the skids. Are, are you hurt, sir? No. Nope. One of my better landings, bud. Evan Evinrude. <laughs> The Outboard Dragonfly
5: Poor Rude. Your carburetor is all pooped out
1: With the voices of Geraldine Page
5: I've got to have the devil's eye
1: Bob Newhart
2: Holy mackerel That's it
1: And Ava Gabor The
3: devil's eye
1: You'll see action Dazzling adventure Here is all the warmth and charm of Disney animation at it's best. Mayday! Mayday! Walt Disney Productions, The Rescuers.
6: What's happening? Do
1: they want us now? We are going to have us rip, snort and fight. You absolutely, positively must see The Rescuers.
0: The Rescuers, June 1977. Now, let's remember, of course, this is the month after Star Wars came out. Not a lot of kids all that interested in mice, so it's amazing people went to see this at all.
6: I can't figure out exactly why. Like, I can't figure out what made this one so successful. It was like it earned the most money since The Jungle Book of any of these other ones. But I can't figure out what about this draws audiences, would draw audiences in so much Um, I can can say why alright,
0: why? one word, drama that's what these other ones that we've just mentioned are lacking, the Aristocats no drama, Robin Hood, no drama, Avengers Winnie the Pooh, no drama, it's all just great fun little uh, stuff, the rescuers genuine sense of tension, genuine sense of threat, little girl really in trouble mice have to actually work to save her
6: I'll give you that one. this one definitely because this one definitely has drama and tension that the other that the pre uh, the preceding films have lacked. yeah, but like just in I don't know how much of that like comes through in a trailer though, like what made this box off like just pull in so many people? I guess word of mouth
0: <clears throat> yeah
6: I, I don't know it it's it still baffles me that this one do, like well, did so very well especially considering it was the cheapest one hmm. they'd made so far
0: also. The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was released in March 77, April, May, June. It was only three months between the two. Pooh may have reminded people why they like Disney.
6: That's a good point, actually. That that could very well have had an impact.
0: So what? then they were like, I might go and see this new one, you know, while I'm queuing for Star Wars.
4: What month <laughs> Again, does Star Wars come out? May. Is it feasible? May 22nd. Is it feasible that the rescuers got a lot of overspill from people who wanted to yeah. go in and see Star Wars, but the theaters were full? I'm not in if any the way suggesting that. Theaters even had more than one screen
0: weeks. in those days, though.
4: I'm sure some of them would have done.
0: Oh, sorry, May 25th, 1977. Okay, some of them would have done. But...
4: Or maybe it was as simple as parents took their kids to see Star Wars, kids were blown away, demanded to be taken to the cinema. Yeah, the forward. cinema!
0: Who knew? That could be. Yeah. <laughs> People were like, oh, suddenly this is a great place to take your kids and it's not too expensive. Maybe so. Thank you, Star Wars. Again. I didn't... I mean, I hadn't intended to go into this with thinking about Star Wars, but I just thought, 1977, how close would this have been to Star Wars? Very... Again, back to the drama. It's heart-wrenching, and at, at times, it's got beautiful backgrounds—really beautiful backgrounds, like these wonderful sort of painted. You can almost see the texture of the. Uh, the is it? Have been drawn on paper, or
6: the, it's uh, yeah, not they, just
0: acetate? Surely,
6: it, especially during that opening, the intro sequence—you yeah. can really feel it. It's very it loose looks and almost very canvass-y. abstract. Yeah, canvass-y. yeah, it, do, it really does. I don't. So, think, I don't think that carries through the rest of the film, but for the yeah. intro it really does look unique and interesting yeah.
0: it's uh it's, it's got that wonderfully evocative sort of the the old um ruined uh riverboat thing there's there's a sense of of, of place to this in a way that the other uh films had not really been attempting to do since oh let's go back shall we Jungle Book actually had that sense of place when it starts with the flutes and the sort of showing you the jungle and going, some things are going to go on, even if it is just a romp, they're trying to immerse you in that world in a way that the the next three really didn't.
4: Yes, and considering that the Aristocats is very definitely set in Paris,
5: but
0: Mm.
4: doesn't really convey a sense of Paris particularly brilliantly, um, and Robin Hood doesn't really convey a sense of England...
0: Not with so many Americans in it, it doesn't. Well, no, but
4: that's that's kind of my point. These are stories to which the place is actually pretty significant. Yeah, and they Even, haven't carried through with it.
0: Although the uh, the swamp critters all seem to speak in this sort of mishmash of various Western characters, rather than. I mean, once you've seen the Princess and the Frog, you're like, now nah, that ain't nobody you speak now. Because the know. the Louisiana accent is is different to say the uh, what be the. The the Tennessee accent, which I think comes out of a few of the characters. As much as far as I can tell. And this is after I've botched a lot of accents myself.
6: Yeah, uh, I mean the the accents kind of are all over the place, just general southern kind of uh mm. country countryous accents, but uh but uh, they're, they're, they're minor characters, they yeah. But they are, yeah. yeah.
0: And, uh, but they also delivered a really hateable villain uh, who is a genuine uh, threat. Medusa is an ancestor of Mother Gothel. She is, say, let's say, daughter of Lady Tremaine from uh, Cinderella because she has that same level of very passive-aggressive... Uh, you have to gain their confidence, make them like you, Uh, how do you do that you force them to like you and it's like she's just under the surface she's this horrible person but she's able to sort of when she speaks to penny and um uh and she's kind of like trying to be kind of we wouldn't want to disappoint me now would you she's not exactly dripping with threat she's just she's being like sort of mother gothel in a kind of also plus i believe getting kind of chubby she's she's getting pally with penny and at the very end when penny says you know um i'm hoping that's you know i get picked up in the orphanage she says who would ever pick up a homely little creature like you in this awful like terrible put down i'm amazed sharon that this didn't immediately make you latch onto this movie
4: i i can't explain it either but it, it just i don't know
0: Medusa was originally going to be Cruella Deville again. They uh, they were going to bring back the character, and uh, you can actually see that that the film actually would have played out pretty much the same with Deville. I
4: th- my only explanation for it is that I I think I had mouse block.
0: <laughs> too many mice.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's what it comes down to: too many animals in clothes.
6: Yeah, I would admit there is something, and I can't. Quite put my finger on it. That leaves me a little lukewarm on this one too. Even though uh, like everything, Alex, you so <laughs> No, everything you mentioned is actually great. Like Medusa is fantastic mm. as a villain. She's modeled
0: and, on Milt carl's ex-wife. By the way, <laughs> he really didn't like her, and so he, he immortalized her as this yeah. awful, horrible character. So there's this was a his venom-
6: last film too. The yeah. last one he worked. She was pretty much his final character he worked on, and he pretty much did all of it by himself. He was. Pretty perfectionist.
0: But even if it was venomous, she's so – like like there's so much swagger to her and sway and, and she's sort of like – she's she's a hideous person but she's kind of sensual as well. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. Mm, like she's no, got this horrible no, bony but sort of like more uh, 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 egg timer sort of body and, and figure and it's like something terrible has gone wrong with Jessica Rabbit. Mm, and, yes. Uh, <laughs> But at the same time, you can tell the, ug- the true ugliness in her just comes pouring out from within whenever she speaks and you realize what kind of a person she really is and how psychotic she is. Uh, but yeah, she's, th- there's so many frames of animation to her and there's so much character in there that she's hypnotic and she's one of the triumphs of this. The other one for me is the combination of Bernard and Miss Bianca because Ava um, Gabor as Duchess is lovely but oblivious. Yeah. As Miss Bianca, because as opposed to being set up with a begun long one, Phil Harris, who's always totally cool about everything, even even if he's sort of um, uh, caught uh, caught out. Bob Newhart's Bernard. Uh, it's it, it's all comes through in one little movement. He does. It's when he licks his lips nervously in a kind of a <laughs> kind of way. He's butters. He's a geek. He's a nerd. He's us. He's this sort of little guy who's never met anybody who's particularly um, uh, exotic or or beautiful or has never been able to really talk to one. And he's thrown in with this woman who chooses him and who sees something in him that she wants him to be close to her. And she's so glamorous and kind. And at the same time, she is a little bit naive and oblivious. They sort of play off each other in the fact that while Bernard is uh, paranoid and um, uh, superstitious and um, uh, what's what's the word pan pessimistic, she's optimistic and she sees the good in things. And she, you know, she's one of those people who a lot of a lot of why I like Miss Bianca is probably due to my own mother, who has a very similar way of just sort of breezing through life, and everything goes. Not so, much, not so much everything goes right for her, but she doesn't, like, I get frustrated about everything. I claw at the table and chew the furniture and go, ah, why don't things work out for me? For some reason, my mother doesn't do that, and things work out a lot easier for her. It's, it's, it's weird like that. But you, you put someone who's not sure of themselves together with that kind of person, and you have this sort of, a uh, very kind of special on-screen chemistry, and it's... I love the, the little song when they're um, uh, uh, flying off on, on, on the um, uh, albatross. And here's the thing. I did not see this growing up. I don't think I really saw this and paid attention until I got it on Blu-ray a few months ago. So this is not like I grew up with this and obviously I can't see its flaws. I'm only seeing its strengths.
4: See, I did grow up with it and it never really seized me. Ah. So maybe that, maybe being able to see it with an adult's eyes. I mean, I rewatching it, I did see more in it, um, certainly than I, I did when I was younger. But it was a comp- uh, um a composite of parts. I could see that Medusa was a great character, and and Bianca was a great character. Penny, Meh. Um, but um, but generally, I could see all the things that were well made about it it just doesn't quite coalesce so when you
0: watch this and you didn't think what would lyra do if put in this position she's about penny's age she's about penny's level of comprehension of things you weren't thinking that you were just completely divorced from that idea and uh, that's okay that'll never happen to lyra
4: i think on some level but there's something so ah, no i'll tell you exactly what it is and it's the whole smuggler's cove thing Mm -hmm. famous five i am very familiar with children dealing with this kind of thing and being extremely uh, not exactly nonchalant but the the threat being so mitigated because the narrative is intended for young children that i couldn't see it as a real situation
0: See, I saw the threat, uh, especially of of Penny being crushed by this woman, as being very strong uh, throughout. There's a point, though, where Penny imitates Medusa, and she does her little swagger, and it's kind of her way of coping. And I I said to uh, Lyra, the reason she cares for Teddy so much is because no one's there to care about her, so she projects what she wants to be treated like onto this bear. That's why this Teddy is so bloody important to her. And there's so much in there.
7: Be
5: brave. Make a wish for each sad little tear Hold your head up, though no one is near Someone's waiting for you Don't cry one. there'll be a smile
6: In that climax in the black hole cavern with the tide coming in actually mm. really does carry some real threaded danger to it, which has not been seen in a Disney film for a while now. Mm. It's it's a, a,
0: a it's a scary. If you can project yourself into Penny's shoes, it is a scary situation to be stuck in, and she she doesn't seem to be able to comprehend how scary it is. Like she she's not terrified of those alligators. I would be. Oh yeah, also I the, the, the bit with the organ and the alligators are trying to get the mice <laughs> out of it—that's great fun. I, don't, I, I can't. I sat there and sat there, stony faced. I was like, "Come on!" This is great. Um, this was the la- what the last collaboration between Milk, Carl, Ollie Johnson, and Frank Thomas. So it was kind of the last of the old guard, and uh, a lot of people um, actually draw a line here as to when Disney really changed. Um, I can understand that as well.
6: This one definitely is a. More of a joint venture between the last uh, few remaining nine old men and mm-hmm. all that uh, young blood who'd been uh, training up in the studio. I-, I can, I can really feel Don Bluth's hand as a directing animator on this one, just in the look, especially on Penny. Mm-hmm. There's there's a very distinctive look to Don Bluth animation, and it's one which actually we at Pixar we sometimes try to avoid, but it like it's a very distinctive, very Smooth, very heavy on the arcs kind of look that I feel like I see a lot of in uh, Penny. But he also is really good at bringing out a really, like, innocent. A lot of he's really great at bringing out a lot of personality out of a ki- a young kid character,
5: mm.
6: like just in the look and the way they move and and then their behavior. They really feel like little kids, and he's uh, he's very good at that. But yeah, a lot of the young, a lot of the uh, younger animators would have been uh, helping out a great deal in this movie. Mm. And uh, they would pretty much be taking over by the time the next one came around.
0: If you don't count Winnie the Pooh, this is, may have been the cheapest Disney film made since the war, and maybe ever. It was at 1.2 million. There's almost nothing which rivals that.
6: And even more than Robin Hood, this one feels cheap to me. Like, yeah. And I think it actually, I think a big reason why is just the audio. Like the sound effects all sound like the kind of temp. No, like temp sounds we'd put in a yeah. rough animatic for scratch audio these days and the score it has some really nice themes but it really doesn't feel like it pulls its weight a lot of the time like it doesn't help to reinforce what's happening in the film moment to moment Or at least not nearly as much as it could
0: the instrumentation is very 70s it's rude it, oh in it there so well. is it's all and that
6: the horns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and
0: pulling in and then the flutes and the, the World Trade Center in that version of New York. It's it's one of the first um, much like hundred and one Dalmatians and it's one of the only ones actually set in its time. Yeah.
2: r e s c u e Rescue A Society.
5: Touch the sky. You mean everything to me.
6: Did either of you, in watching this, and this might have just been something me and Carrie latched onto and then couldn't let go of, but I feel like like Bianca's role in the story should feel like a pretty big step forward for female leads in a Disney mm. story. But the fact that the film like keeps calling attention to Bernard and Bianca's sort of respective roles almost like. Okay, like, yes, Bianca volunteers for the rescue mission, and that's great, and she gets it because the times they are changing, but just to make sure she doesn't get herself hurt or something, let's send a guy with her. Anyone want to volunteer? And it's a small step beyond, no, lady, you can't go, this is man's work, get out of here, but it's such a small step, and it keeps kind of calling attention to itself, or at least it felt like it did for Carrie and I, that it just kept on feeling like it was calling attention to how much room for improvement there still was. She's not quite Mary Poppins, is she? She doesn't have that. No, not quite.
0: But at the same time, she—if you actually look at her personality—she needs a person, whether male or female, to to basically to bring a a bit of rationality to the uh, the, because she's getting by on total whimsy. Like when they get to the airport, she's like, "It's okay, the plane will wait for me." And she's she's the sister of Jar Jar Gabor, so she's used to basically being pampered and people making a fuss of her, and so things do fall in, into line for her. But um Bernard lives in a world where you have to work your ass off, otherwise nothing happens.
6: And I think especially by the time these characters reappear in the sequel, mm. I think like the balance I think that balance feels completely that balance then completely works for me because that it, it really that movie really reinforces her proactive, like optimistic, come on, let's go, we have a job to do. Mm. And his kind of lagging behind like uh, worried sort of hit like cheat the only reason he's hasn't given up yet is because she is the one who keeps on pushing we have to do this yeah and which, so, and I, I really do like them the two of them as characters and their vocal performances as well. They
0: could pilot a mouse Jager <laughs> oh, which cats. I suppose would be That's a cat, a cat. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> Okay now I've got visions of them both sat on the back of our oh, no, it would be a girl. dog and
0: they would fight cats with it <laughs>
4: <laughs> yes.
6: I guess it, actually it should just be an albatross. Technically, um,
0: Basil has a mouse Jaeger. What? Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's his dog, <laughs> which turns his ears into stairs. Anyway, just a little w- drift thing there.
6: I will say I, this is probably the only time in, in Disney animation history where I think the sequel far surpasses the original. Really? I think so. Yeah.
0: I am not a fan of the sequel. Well, let's Interesting. See. Oh, that'll be fun when we get there Come around. Okay. Um, this also, I love that little moment where um, uh, Bernard's um, trying to sort of be professional, and she puts her head on a, uh, his shoulder when they're flying, and he sort of eases into it, and he does that little stretch and move his arm around, and it's kind of like, like, like any nerd like myself will know the sort of the feeling of I put my arm around her, and she didn't pull away. That's special, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, I. I That seemed like a very personal touch. Uh, This was their first big success since The Jungle Book, and it would be their last until The Little Mermaid. I mean, principally, because with a $1.2 million budget, you can't really fail. (laughs) That's
6: true, yeah.
0: They'd lowered it so much that if they'd made $2.3 million, that still would have doubled it.
6: This was also the um, last time... Well, this is the last time you'll see that really sketchy Xerox look in a Disney film. After this, they've refined the process quite a bit, so where the uh, lines get back to the much cleaner feel of the hand-inked era. Yeah. I don't know specifically what it was they figured out that made that change, or but, uh, but yeah, so no more sketchy look.
2: After four years in the making, Walt Disney Productions proudly announces a milestone in entertainment. Our 20th fully animated motion picture... The Fox and the Hound.
5: Ah!
1: Look out. Ah! Here it comes. Hot out of Walt
2: Disney Productions. Holy... Oh.
1: <coughs> the Fox and the Hound.
3: My,
2: my. Look
3: at that. A fox and a hound playing together.
2: <laughs> they were born into two different worlds.
3: I'm a fox. My name's Todd. What's your name, kid? Mine's Copper. I'm a hound dog.
1: Natural enemies.
3: Wow. Look at those teeth.
2: But the best of friends.
3: We will always be friends forever, won't we? Yeah, forever. Welcome.
2: Me and old Chief are gonna teach you all about hunting. Yes, sir.
1: (laughs) Papa's gonna come back a trained hunting dog, a real killer.
3: Oh no, not my friend Copper. He won't ever change.
2: But never can sneak up sooner than you think. (laughs) We're still friends, aren't we? Those days are over. I'm a hunting dog now. All right, boy, get
5: tracking. Spell him out.
2: All the excitement of Disney's famous action animation is yours again in this major entertainment event. Best friend make the worst enemies. Disney does it again. The way you've always loved it. Animation in the revered Disney tradition. A heartwarming story the way Disney's always told them. The Fox and the Hound.
3: I'm a fox. I'm a hound dog.
0: Next up, the Fox and the Hound from nineteen eighty one. This was collaborated upon by including others in the animation terms. And this is after the Exodus with Don Bluth and his eleven was it eleven or sixteen I've seen mixed results on that one.
6: I've seen mixed numbers too, like from like something like eleven percent to half. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, his bunch of animators all just left. It's, it's very much like what um, Image Comics did with Marvel, as in like a whole bunch of Marvel comic uh, uh, the artists got up and went, we're all going to go be millionaires. See ya. And their plans kind of worked out for Tom McFarlane. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, in their place, you had John Lasseter, John Musker and Ron Clements, who went on to do Aladdin, Glenn Keane, Tim Burton, Brad Bird, who went on to do The Iron Giant, Ratatouille, and The Incredibles, Henry Selick, who went on to do The Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, James and the Giant Peach, and uh, what's he doing at the moment, the troll thingy?
6: Oh, yeah, the box trolls box, or something.
0: And box trolls. And they all worked on this one a very collaborative giant melting pot of many, many cooks. Dan, please sing the praises of this thing Uh,
6: Okay, I will I will admit to that this is definitely not It's certainly not a Like the high point For uh, this era But there is actually a lot That I still do like in it Like I feel like it contains some Surprisingly potent Character drama for a Disney movie Especially like like the arc of Todd and Copper's relationship is a kind of thing that you haven't really seen in a Disney movie up to this point uh and also the film really gets just aggressively tear jerky in some places the uh like the
0: cry bastards!
6: yeah yeah the entire the whole song of uh oh what is her name vixie no 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 the um the Big old one. woman who no, the oh, old woman who keeps.
0: Oh uh, God, her Jesus Christ! That song, widow or... twanky, I believe she's called.
6: Okay, I've heard. Until if you're joking.
0: <laughs> no, widow twanky is a British pantomime term for the dame.
6: I gotcha, Okay, well it's widow her... tweed. Widow tweed. Okay, but her taking Todd out into the woods to, to let him to let him go is just. It is, yeah, it's the cry, you bastards, aggressively <laughs> song.
0: <laughs> I love hearing you say that.
6: <laughs> it's, but yeah, the Todd Copper relationship thing, something about that, like, I feel like it could be done better. And it has, that sort of thing has certainly been done better in other films and other stories. But the whole.
0: It's Romeo and Juliet, isn't it?
6: It kind of is, just in terms of just a friendship of two, like, two. Creatures who are their roles and and their existence is not meant to be one where they are friends, and so it obviously can't last. And as they grow older, and those two roles uh, just clash more and more as their, their instincts,
0: expe- and, uh, cultural instincts and instincts and expectations of them, yeah, change.
6: Like, this should where-
0: be brilliant for me because I, I love this stuff technically,
6: I th- and I feel like it is all really there, and I think like in the it really just culminates very like pretty successfully. I think by the time you get to the climax of the, of the film and just the bear, the basically the bear who steam rolls in and just wrecks everything for everybody.
0: <laughs> Do
6: you know what happened in the
0: original novel, by the way?
6: Uh, much darker than what we yeah. saw in this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it made Bambi seem like a walk in the woods.
6: Yeah. And I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to say that this would be better for sticking.
0: It's mostly about Todd's life in the woods and he, he was raised by humans, but he was not a childhood friends with copper and uh, he ends up killing. He kills um, chief who was supposed to die in this, but they just declined to kill chief because they didn't want a downer, because they were putting too much money into it. They didn't want people to not like it. So chief lived. And then basically copper helps the hunter. Uh, copper helps. Is it Amos? I think so, yes. Yeah, Amos Slade. Copper helps Amos Slade to hunt and hunt and hunt Todd until Todd drops down dead.
6: The end. Yeah, that's...
0: It's a parable
6: about how society
0: determines one's role despite his or her better impulses. Kind of like Man of Steel.
6: (laughs) But it's... All right, back on Lady on the Tramp, I argue, <laughs> that, that I, I argue that Disney would not have gained anything by killing Trusty at the end of the coach chase. Like, I don't think it would have done anything for that movie except add a superfluous shock. On this one, I am 100% in the opposite camp. You think Chief,
0: Chief should have died.
6: Chief dying halfway through this movie absolutely would have given Copper far more reason to turn on Todd. And yeah. like, as it turns out, The fact that Todd nearly gets Chief killed and that turns Copper against him, it works okay, but I feel it would have been a lot easier to sympathize with Copper being out for blood if Chief had died there instead of just ending up in a cast for a little while. Back
0: to Romeo and Juliet, it's Romeo killing Tybalt and Juliet being very, very angry and upset because her cousin's dead and it was Romeo what done it.
4: I think that's one of the things that I that really turned me against it the the whole the, the film as a whole i could kind of take or leave but there were three specific things about it that really put me off one was the fact that chief did not die therefore when copper stands there and says basically i will make todd pay for this and, and is absolutely furious he's furious about the fact that chief's leg has got hurt a little bit you hurt his leg which really does not narratively fit um, the second thing is actually earlier in the film. Um, it's when I think it's the owl is singing a song about. Again uh, with the, the owls. I know. I know. Again with the owls. But she's singing a song about how, you know, they're playing together and they're so innocent. and Oh, God. Completely, when you're the
0: best of friends.
4: Completely naive um, to the fact that they're natural enemies. No
0: through the eyes the of whole the child, point the whole the world point seems magical is that
4: as children, there is nothing to set them against each other. Society turns them into enemies. that is not the same thing as being natural enemies if you 're going to use it as a a, a representative thing, then you 're missing the point entirely, otherwise, it is simply about the fact that dogs chase foxes. <sighs> And the third thing um, is when uh, the widow takes Todd into the wood and there's this big whole thing about how ostensibly she's taking him and letting him go free because she doesn't want him to get killed. Because if he stays with her, the idea is that that the hunter and, and copper will go after him until they catch him and kill him. However... The wild is not a safe place for foxes either. Certainly they not a tame able fox. to track him. Other things will potentially be able to kill him. What she is basically saying at he that point... He almost dies
0: of exposure. Exactly. Were it not for that helpful... Was it a badger?
4: Something like that, yeah. But what she is basically saying at that point is, you're going to die. I just don't want to know about it.
0: To an extent. I think That's there is... That's what um, Capulet says.
4: What, you're going to die? I just don't want to
0: know about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, till you be mine, I give you to my friend. Otherwise, starve, die in the street. Yeah, that's that's Paul, Paul, what's his name? Paul Bettany, Paul Verhoeven, Paul Winchell. Sorvino. <laughs> Paul Sorvino. Yeah, Paul Winchell's Capulet. <laughs> 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 Sorry.
4: I want to see Paul Bettany's, frankly.
0: <laughs> yeah, so do I. Carry on.
6: I... I mean, I do see the motivation to her actions there. She's taking him to a nature preserve where, essentially, he cannot be hunted. And the fact that Amos goes after him anyway is like he's breaking the law to do so.
0: But it was kind so, of and she, and she
6: knows that And she knows that keeping the fox there in her house, it's like the fox is not safe there. The, that Amos is a, just in a rage and has a crazy temper problem, and she can't keep the fox inside the house all the time. And that's just guaranteed. If Todd stays at the house, that she's going that Todd's gonna end up getting killed there. So really, she's I'm sure she's well aware of, would be well aware of the dangers still inherent. But I think it's sort of a would be a case of you have a much better chance of surviving it and being happy living out like that's, just out yeah, there, other than being stuck in this way. house waiting Does, to die.
4: Doesn't she end up sort of friends with Amos at the end? Yeah. Isn't there some little hint that they've kind of got together which is really really twisted
6: it's a little weird i don't know if, like i don't know if it's hinted at at the getting together but i mean they're definitely on much friendlier terms and she's i mean still antagonizing him but
0: Romeo yeah it's way friendlier
6: terms he uh, maybe that represents a bit of a turnaround for his character after everything that happens but i don't know it does feel a little bit weird i'll give you definitely give you that
0: I'm so bored just talking about this film. It's so boring to watch.
6: I love that they're the at the core, the Todd and copper relationship and the seeing the transition from their playful little pups, like running around playing hide and seek yeah. to them being older and adults and seeing copper actually turning into a really scary bloodthirsty thing coming after Todd and the actual, and like speaking of like genuine threats, there is definitely a feeling of danger and threat throughout the entire climax, especially by the time the bear comes in. It actually gets very intense and scary. And that thing is just a huge, terrifying machine to everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And the quiet kind of tension immediately after the bear with uh, Copper interceding, standing in the way when uh, Amos has a gun pointed at Todd. Like A lot of that, even though it's kind of stumbled all along the way and certain parts of it haven't worked as well as it really should... I think the core of it still actually does work quite well. If it's just, there's a lot of other stuff you kind of have to put up with.
0: This is, I think, what other people see when they watch Winnie the Pooh and don't like it. I completely understand and forgive them. They're not insane. I'm sorry for saying people are, because (laughs) they they must just see Winnie the Pooh goes to see uh, Piglet. They talk about a balloon. And it's like, if you just (laughs) literally see it for what it is, it's going to be tedious. And remember, these are films made for little, little kids. So if we can appreciate them as adults at all, then they're achieving far more than they should.
4: See, you've got to be very, very careful how you apply bear to a film if there's little
5: kids.
0: <laughs> we went to see Brave. Didn't realise quite how much bear they would be. There were, in fact, 90% more bear than was advertised. We thought it'd be an end-of-level boss. It's a main character.
4: Every time the bear was on screen, Lyra freaking out. <laughs>
0: and the bear is an untrustworthy narrator. Might suddenly go all glassy-eyed and terrifying. Mm-hmm.
6: So yeah,
4: it, it has to be blue. If it's not singing the bear necessities, it's mortal <laughs> yes. danger.
0: Baloo or, or hol- Little John, or
6: or, hold, yes. or holding a balloon, floating up a honey tree.
0: Yeah, yes.
4: those bears are. That, awesome. Those bears are.
0: All the gummy cool.
6: bears. Except
4: those bears <laughs> bouncing here and there and everywhere. All
0: the bears in Brother Bear, except for actually no. When we get to Brother Bear, have you seen Brother Bear yet, um, Dan?
6: You haven't. I don't even remember if I've seen. Uh, I've seen. Have you seen it, brother- at least? Brave. Oh, Brave. Absolutely. Then you've
0: seen Brother Bear. Um, (laughs) Have you seen Brother Bear? Then you've seen Brave. It's the same film, Um, only with a mother-daughter relationship or a brother-brother relationship. In fact, technically, it's a brother-brother-brother relationship. Uh, But uh, there is that same level of... I mean, technically, there is a link between that and this because um, that and, I suppose, The Lion King and Bambi... These are all animal films where they they go, okay, there is this thing called nature. It may not be particularly pleasant. And they just hint that there might be a lot more danger than these animals in clothes talking would suggest. In fact, I was thinking, well, why couldn't the rescuers be 101 Dalmatians in the same world? There's a very good reason for that. um, Because um, in the rescuers' world, the mice talk... And it's like real mice can talk, they just choose not to talk around people. Whereas in 101 Dalmatians, dogs talk to each other and only to each other. They don't speak English. So they're two completely different worlds.
4: And even if it's just a question of the dogs aren't talking in a way that humans could understand them deliberately, humans who saw the rescuers, as in the rescue aid society... Even if the mice weren't talking, they would still go. Why are those mice wearing clothes? Yeah, that
0: mouse got a tiny
4: little hat on. Who and made it least, in that hat? At least in Cinderella, you know she's dressed the
0: mice. Yes, yeah. she's the lunatic with the very tiny sewing kit. Exactly. Um, but uh, but it's not just mice. Cats. The cat in the rescuers also talks. There's it's, it's like it, there's different rule sets for different Disney worlds. So there's a reason why you can't just have them um, cross pollinate. with each other. Exactly. But I yeah, this say... is one of the ones where they kind of Disney in the wild a bit more. So I should at least respect it for that. It's the fact that it doesn't really commit to that, just like Bambi, that um, leaves it falling short.
4: I will say this about the Fox and the Hound, though. And this is something that I think I'm going to find myself saying about most of the Disney films, retrospectively, having now seen Oliver and Company. And that is that the animation is still gorgeous. The backgrounds in this are beautiful. They, they, when they've gone back to where they're doing the woodlands and you've got all these almost impressionistic trees um, filling in behind everybody. I, I I could just filter out the foreground and just sit and watch
0: those.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And that fight with the bear at the end, the animation on that is pretty exceptional. That's Glenn Keane kind of uh, showing how much of an animation superstar he was going to become. I guess that by that point he already was. It's pretty much the standout piece of animation in the whole film.
0: That's another reason why The Rescuers feels a little bit cheap. There are occasional times when the camera pans across what's obviously a canvas. Uh, it's when they're travelling, and it's like it's to indicate travel, and it just moves slightly up over a, a, a top-down view of a landscape, and it's like wow, you actually couldn't animate flying through this and it's just a camera moving over there that was the possibly the cheapest shot in the entire film it's gorgeous but if you start thinking about it too much you realize how much of a shoestring they were on just be
4: grateful it's not a map with a red line
0: (laughs) no with the with the fox and hounds they went all out on trying to immerse you in it it's not like tarzan's deep canvas my god do i love tarzan's deep canvas (laughs) holy (laughs) boy do I love Tarzan's deep canvas holy balls but <laughs> My God if Disney could have done 10 films like that I would have been very happy um, but uh, but it, it has similar feelings to it. Uh, there's other films which do that as well. Um, I think Bambi has a quite a bit of um, sort of like moving backgrounds to sort of establish depth.
6: yeah the old multiplane camera yeah. tech.
2: When you are the best of friends.
1: Having so much fun together You're not even aware You're such a funny pair You're the best of friends If you pound around
3: with that copper hound You'll wind up hanging on the wall Keep your nose to the wind and you'll keep your skin Cause you won't be home when the hunter comes a call
5: Will you feel that natural affection
3: lead you in the
5: positive direction.
3: You gotta stop
5: showing off. show showing up with little old natural you. Goodbye.
6: Ultimately, another lukewarm box office success. Yeah. Disney Animation continues to limp along.
0: But because this one was incredibly expensive, this one, as opposed to $1.2 million, cost $12 million. Yeah. And this one was something that Disney had already just lost a huge amount of their animators, a huge amount of their faith. Suddenly, it's not just that they lost these guys in a bus crash or something. They went across town and became their competitors really giving them the reason to actually pull out all the stops and just do it and just right, finally compete. And this was what they came up with.
6: Enough.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, it made 10 million less than the rescuers did on its shoestring budget. So that's dispiriting to everyone who worked very, very hard on this. Uh, also the, the whole dinky and boomer thing with this worm, it's, it's Scrat in Ice Age. It's, it really just, is. it's just to uh, distract you, and like, yeah, it's, it's the clowns come out and do their clown thing.
4: That's also the longest living caterpillar in the history of the universe.
0: Yeah. Who are you? One thing we didn't mention about uh, the Fox and the Hound is the voice talents of Mickey Rooney, now sadly departed. Uh, Kurt Russell as the adult copper. Mickey Rooney with the adult Todd. And Corey Feldman as the young copper.
6: That was something I'd never known until I watched it this time and actually looked up the credits. Corey Feldman, actor-turned-singer. Corey Feldman, a former actor who now dabbles in invite-only sex parties and the kind of drugs that other drugs take to get weird. Corey Feldman, a disgraced lizard creature banished to earth to study the vomit patterns of our loneliest women. Corey Feldman, wrinkled king of the sewer perverts. Corey, they know my name at all the strip clubs and not because I used to be famous Feldman. Corey Feldman, the squeakiest of farts.
0: Recently released a music video. It's terrible, and sharing it with you is the most important
6: thing I will ever do. It's called Ascension Millennium, because those are words Corey's heard before.
3: I'm a hound dog.
2: Legend has it, there was once a king so cruel and so evil that the gods feared him. Since no prison could hold him, he was trapped forever in the form of a great black cauldron. The old King, that black-hearted devil. Walt Disney Pictures presents The Black Cauldron. Escape into a world of darkness. Are you
3: coming? Me? Go in there?
2: Oh, no, no, no. It's a terrible place. <gasps> a world of excitement. <sighs> A world of dreams.
1: Siren, the greatest warrior of two hero.
2: And through the magic of 70-millimeter photography and 6-track Dolby sound, you will be transported to a fantasy event for the entire family.
5: Look! Look, sire! It's working! Soon, the Black Cauldron will
2: be mine. In the great tradition of Disney animated classics, now comes the newest Disney
0: spectacle of them all, The Black Cauldron. Right, 1985's The Black Cauldron. (sighs) Here we go. Here we go, right. Now, Dan, you hadn't seen this before, had you? I hadn't. So, what was your experience like with The Black
6: Cauldron? Those are very long 80 minutes
0: Yes, it is. Let's just set the scene, folks, because it's 1985. Ralph Bakshi's *Lord of the Rings* had come out seven years before, in 1978, and it was it was a decent success. Let me just uh, check the numbers on that. It was a decent success. It cost four million. It made thirty million. Uh, which isn't an insane amount of uh, money, but in in those days, uh, see the, what what had Disney done at the same time? That was '78, so that would be say the Rescuers. So versus you know the most well-known, beloved book of all time being adapted into a troubled film that I loathe. Uh, Thirty million dollars that took Rescuers took seventy-one million. So seriously, Disney was still flying high in comparison. Somehow they got it into their heads that that's what people wanted to see. And seven years later, after there was no follow-up to it, and after uh, Rankin-Bass had made The Hobbit and The Return of the King to just for TV, I believe that was, um, the Black Cauldron emerged. So, Dan, what was it... Again, back to the same question, apart from just being long, what was it like?
6: It's really hard to dissect what happened like what caused this film to be what it was because watching it it does not even feel like a Disney film it doesn't feel like the same oh. people are at the wheel even though I know a lot of the same people are it
0: fe- felt like Don Bluth's output at that time it
6: felt a bit like a mix of Don Bluth with a hint of that Bakshi influence thrown yeah. in there yeah like and if Bakshi and Bluth got together and
0: put that together. I, you know what? If you showed me this and I had no prior knowledge of it and said this is Bakshi and Bluth, I'd go, yep, okay, I can see all the hallmarks. I and totally I, I would believe pick it. out things that I would I would see as, as like like the what appears to be rotoscoping, I would pick out and go, yeah, well that's obviously what what Bakshi did whenever the Horned King turns up and whenever yep. the cauldron totally. turns up. And, and the worst thing about that is that was brand new computer technology. They were using... What's the actual uh, name of it? APT.
6: Uh, Well, the APT thing was, uh, I think, a still with the ink and paint technology thing that was going to try to replace Xerox but didn't end up working. But that was their early, early CG experiments. Sometime, I assume, after uh, Lasseter got... Yeah. Like, got canned for trying to push it. They still introduced it. But, uh... But yeah, they did like use CG for some very limited elements, like the cauldron and some bubbles, and just some very small stuff here and there. It was their early experiments? Yeah,
0: this was the first one that really started using computer assisted. Well, they're not really actually they dared to use it because they were throwing everything at it. Forty-four million dollars. Let's go back two films. One point two million dollars for the Rescuers. That cauldron, forty-four million dollars.
6: And the weird thing is you all right there are a few sequences where you do actually see that money at play there are a few places where just the color work and the design and all that really does end up looking really beautiful especially where a lot of effects and lighting and crazy stuff is concerned like uh, the uh, the that king kind of uh the just, horned king the yeah the horned king uh going up and just like bringing that cauldron to life, and just the crazy light show and spectacular effects and everything—it looks very, it looks very Fantasia-like almost.
0: Oh uh, yeah, they're obviously trying to evoke uh, Fantasia, and, and uh, it almost seems like if they were, they were just going to go back and use those techniques again. It might actually have been more uh, effective to actually remain consistent throughout.
6: It's really hard to find ways to complement the movie. I mean, there are bits and pieces. Strewn about all of this just mediocre, boring, just waste that, like, you can see some little sparks of interesting characters hidden underneath these characters that don't end up being that interesting. The three There's, witches are fun. The three witches are kind of fun, though just sort of superfluous. And
0: yeah, just, that just whole a, section pointless. didn't need to be in there at all.
6: Our main character hero is completely dull and just boring. Yeah. Princess Alongwe has her moments, but. She comes also, in
0: far too late.
6: Yeah, also a bit dull. The um, the bard, what's his name? Fleur Flair Flem. Right. Uh, Played by Nigel Hawthorne. And he has like some of his little uh, kind of character bits and game. The bit with the stuff with the harp and the what? All right. So how does the gag with the harp work? It's been a couple weeks since I see it. it basically, it does it pluck like break a string every time he lies. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: But, he, but he's yeah, this got just seems f- like something which was in the book and they were like well we've got to put that in and then it just kept being on the list of things they had to come in and for some reason everything else got crossed off but this one got left over
6: yeah I mean it's, it's a f- fun little bit of business and some of his acting is like in terms of animation is really entertaining and fun but just ultimately this film is just such a slog it feels like it's two hours or more long yeah it is just boring and it's I, it's really hard to, even looking at like behind-the-scenes stuff and stuff that's been written about it, it's hard to figure out exactly what the cause of it was.
0: Yeah, no one said, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, there's nothing on the DVD about making of nothing. It's just like I, I mean, I don't blame them.
6: It's, yeah. I, I want to underst- on one hand, I can understand, all right, so you've got a studio full of young blood and new artists, yeah. and the old guard are completely out of the picture now. And these guys are hungry and ambitious and they really want to make something. They they really want, want to put their stamp on this. Yeah,
0: and they don't want to let Bluth beat them.
6: And I mean, and this is a film that they had been expecting to work on for some time. It got delayed multiple times. I mean, some have said that one of the reasons Bluth left is because they kept on pushing this film back. And he was just like and, and he was just got fed up with, OK, so we're just going to keep working on Rescuers and Fox and the Hound and whatever else. I'm leaving. We're, we're going to go actually make something interesting.
0: I'm going to make something with mice and then another <laughs> thing with dinosaurs and then another thing with mice and then another <laughs> thing with dogs. Oh, Van Dom.
6: Yeah, but it, still, it, it, this might have been one of the reasons he left. It's just this was a big, ambitious thing that a lot of the animators were really hungry to get to. Like, and you can kind of, you can kind of imagine the situation. You've got a bunch of young guys who grew up watching Disney films and loving it, and they're and now they're adults and they kind of want to bring a little bit more of that. Uh, darkness and a little bit more maturity and a little bit more mm. i mean they've seen stuff like uh, clearly they've seen bakshi's uh, lord of the rings stuff because you can really that, yeah. you can really feel the influence and the look of this and
0: oh, but th- that's the thing they should have looked at that and gone right here is how we can make that better because I mean, this is 11 times the budget to put things a bit more in perspective uh, this the chronicles of Pradane is a series of five children's fantasy novels by lloyd alexander uh, and they were published from 1964 to 1968, just over five years, one a year. This is number two. You never get the feeling that it's part of a long, an ongoing series.
6: Ever you really don't. You never get the
0: feeling of where they are. That's the thing about Lord of the Rings. This is Middle Earth. This is a character in the story. It's the most important character. You need to care about what happens to is it called Pradane, the land? It draws on Welsh. Exactly. I shouldn't be asking this question. It should have been firmly established. What the land is, why the Horned King wanted to like when the Horned King pulls up his army, who are they going off to attack?
6: Yeah, they never show the people that inhabit this world. You never you never see what this world is you never see what this world is like at its best so that you feel so that there's a threat of it being ruined. In
0: Willow, a really like Diet Coke version of Lord of the Rings, my favourite of the fantasy films of the 80s, even in that film, they make... They go out of their way to establish that there is a land, a place called Tiraslin. They go out of their way to establish that there are two sides of this war uh, that's been going on for a long time. And there are a lot of places getting caught in the crossfire that the Nelwins live in the Shire, which has not been uh, caught up in, in all of this. And that, you know, when Willows journeys out into it, he is heading into a war zone. It's just exactly the same as Lord of the Rings. It's, it's almost the other thing is. There's been so many really good films recently about a young lad who wants to be an awesome warrior and isn't very good at much of anything. Kung Fu Panda, How to Train Your Dragon, and those are DreamWorks, and they do it so well, there is no point watching a film that does it badly.
6: No, it's true. That's, what's, that's part of what's so weird about this. Like I can understand the film does not look visually and like, especially in the animation up to par with what with anything else that disney has put out and i can understand i can write that off as we have a lot of young animators who are not quite experienced enough to be able to manage something this ambitious i mean part of the reason why you might have been seeing so many films with animal characters is because people are really hard to draw and I imagine and so, right yeah. that like that's really challenging the reason milt called kept on getting given these human characters and he would kept on getting really bored about it is because no one else li- could do <laughs> because he yeah, because he's so good that he could always just get that subtlety and the and the body mechanics and all it all of it is very hard because we we all know what humans look like and we know it when it looks yeah. wrong no we don't really know what looks wrong on a talking mouse yeah with if a the hat. mouse is
0: well, talking already something's wrong
6: Exactly, so like there's some stylization really there. Amount. Yeah, and this is a film with two main human, oh, three main human characters, and it's predominantly human esque type characters in this film, and it's and it's semi realistic looking for a for a Disney film. Not not a whole lot of stylization to the look. It's. I can understand why visually this isn't quite up to par with just a younger staff. What I can't get is why the story and the characters especially feel so weak. Like even in a weak Disney story, usually the characters at least are charming or entertaining yeah. or interesting.
4: I think I may have an explanation for that. Cause it struck me when I was watching it,
5: that
6: yeah?
4: the problem with um, swords and sorcery style fantasy um, is that it's a very particular audience and people who aren't into swords and sorcery style fantasy get bored by this kind of film. People who are into swords and sorcery fantasy, this the way the story carries out in this, it's the most boring part of a swords and sorcery fantasy. It's where they're doing the setup of, here's the thing that's going to get kidnapped or stolen and somebody's going to have to go and find it. It's all set up. It's all outlining, you know, somebody takes the pig. That should be 10 minutes at the beginning of the film. And then the rest of it is the quest to to get her back. Um, and, and frankly, we need something with a bit more weight to it, uh, narratively speaking, than a pig that can tell the future. Um, but I think for me, it was just the fact that this whole...
0: Um, we it, haven't explained the story to the people at home, most of whom won't have seen this film.
4: I think I've just summed the story well, yeah. up, to be There's quite honest. Most of it is boy.
0: the... Trying okay. to find this damn pig. There's a boy. Look. He's Poe from Kung Fu Panda. He wants to be a warrior. He, he has a pig who, for some reason, can tell the future. The pig tells that the, the, the horned king, Voldemort, slash Sauron, is going to rise up and bring up his demon army of... Fucking of zombies (laughs) of zombies or something and he has to take the pig to safety in the woods somewhere and that will achieve doesn't matter because then his quest is underway and then he gets then the pig gets kidnapped by a dragon conveniently and then he goes to a castle where the horn king is stops the pig getting killed because it's not doing its fortune telling properly meets a princess. Is she a princess or is she claiming to be a princess? She's
4: claiming to be a princess. But
0: she's actually a scullery maid. Then they meet a guy who's got a harp or something. Then they meet some fairies. They escape from the Horned King. Then they meet some witches who they bargain with to get... Oh, I forgot about Gorgie. They meet Gollum... (laughs) They literally meet Gollum. They really, really do. Fluffy, like with Dobby's mentality of like trying to help out, but you know, he's hapless. He doesn't have Gollum's like nastiness, but he's he's got Gollum's voice most definitely. The
4: little squeaky goblin that's constantly pulling on the horned king's robes. Yeah. That's Gollum. Yeah. uh, Googie's Google. uh, Whatever his name (laughs) is. Gergi. Gergi is is Smeagol.
0: Yeah. Okay. So they they meet a Gollum. (sighs) christ it's so boring just talking about this but this is because it's just I, fantasy tropes
4: exactly this is the thing fantasy to the people who love it it's not about what happens it's about how the people interact with each other it's it's not people don't love game of thrones because they're fascinated by the intricacies of medieval politics it's because of the and way the characters sort. interact Yeah, I'm talking about why people love Game of Thrones, not why people hate Game of Thrones. Some people
0: love Game of Thrones because of the sexual assault.
4: That's disturbing.
0: But... (laughs) Can we even put this in?
4: (laughs) I consider myself to be a fantasy fan. This film bored the pants off me because it's all about the... The what happens? The the time devoted to the three witches arguing about the fact that they're going to swap the sword for the cauldron, but then they're going to get the cauldron back anyway because the the kids aren't going to how know what to that do How long must that have taken to
0: animate? How mu- How many millions what, of what dollars were We dollars don't always. know.
4: <laughs> we don't know at that point. Why is the sword so important to the boy whose name I can't even remember? Why is it such a, a huge sacrifice for him to give it up? What? possibly possesses them to think that because the cauldron requires a sacrifice in order to be able to prevent it doing its bad thing you that climb into these the cauldron you die are obviously not gonna do
0: that yeah. so they, you that's, might that's, as well they, they give them the cauldron with. they don't even think about it. They go well if you've got to climb in and then you die i ain't doing it i ain't doing it either well then let's get captured again okay and then they get captured and then gurgi steps forward and throws himself into the cauldron going, you know, well, no one ever cared about Gurgi, And I just thought that was actually that would be a really good way for the actual Lord of the Rings to finish. And this is how boring this film was. We went off onto a divergent conversation, Sharon and I. i like, wouldn't it actually just have been better if Frodo couldn't throw the ring in at the end? And Gollum steps up and takes it from his hand and then just tosses himself and the ring into the uh, into the pit because he understands he's never gonna be free of this thing and it's the only way that he can be free and so it's a self-sacrificial act but it's also an act of, uh, of freeing himself they didn't want a suicide at the end of this film that's why they didn't do that ultimately you know gurgi wants to live and so it is kind of a sad moment but then they fuck it up again and like, it's okay gurgi lived happy ending because he just gets coughed back out of the cauldron and he's fine again. Because they re with the witches to get them the cauldron back to get the sword. The cauldron, the cauldron and the sword. The sword and the cauldron. The Horned King's in there somewhere.
4: But the loss
0: of played the sword. Played by John Hurt.
4: The loss of the sword is meaningless because the kid has basically decided that this sword is not really who he
0: is. Yeah, he's not a warrior.
4: He's actually happy being an assistant pig boy I which mean, is why.
0: That, that's, that's the point of it really. The whole point of the film is just be happy being an assistant blacksmith. But don't we do there's
4: no focus on that. There's no discussion about it. He never has a conversation with Alonwe about his ambitions and the things that he wanted to achieve that he's never been able to achieve. We don't know these people and if you don't know the people, fantasy is pointless because it's trees and leather jerkins and over expensive mead
6: <laughs> you do get a, you do get a bit of visual storytelling of a, i guess part of the reason it's hard for him to give up the sword is because that sword basically cuts through anything and he can very easily feel like a powerful warrior using it yeah so he gets to kind of play at powerful it's warrior a for a little troop. while but by that point i already don't care I about don't that care. kid so like i don't care what he what arc he's going through i'm already bored
0: Yeah. It doesn't doesn't matter to us that this kid gets to be a powerful warrior. In terms of, like, even as a kid watching it, in terms of power fantasy, there's better out there in 1985. Star Wars had come and gone. The second Death Star had exploded. This was so backwards.
4: Luke Skywalker, he is not.
0: God, Um, no. Maybe yeah, it if was you've this- got Luke Skywalker as your lovable protagonist that's captured the nation and the world's hearts, and then that has slowly petered out. And this is the best you do with a character that you've got five books worth of characterization to put into him.
6: Does I, don't if- <laughs> I don't remember his name. I don't remember his name. Tarin. Tarin, okay.
0: And that's only because I have a photographic memory. Audio photographic. Oh man. Yeah, man On maybe- the upside. It has an Elmer Bernstein score, which is very resplendent of Ghostbusters. (laughs) So that's more about the achievement of Ghostbusters, but, you know, it's a start.
4: Lyra got it, didn't she?
0: Yeah, she did after a while when it it came in with the sort of creepiness.
6: It's very, very expensive. It's a lot of money thrown at something that, Mm. from the beginning, had a very weak story at its core. And I don't know if that's because there were a lot, there was a lot of new blood in the story department as well. And they weren't ready for a film of this scale, or maybe it was just, just trying to condense multiple books worth of story into one 80 minute film was just a big challenge for them. But all the money getting thrown at this thing was not going to fix that weak story at its core.
4: I can't help wondering, you know, if Don Bluth and a few of the other animators had really, really been, um, aiming for this and and looking forward to working on this and then left before they actually put it out, could it be that the enthusiasm and the people who actually had the drive to do it properly drizzled out the door?
6: I am expecting that a lot of people, even the people who stayed with Disney, after some time working on this, did start getting a sense that this thing was not shaping up or coming together. I expect there are a lot of people who moved on to the next film. Mm.
4: Because that's the other thing about fantasy. You have got to love it. If you are going to adapt it successfully, you have got to love it.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe it was just the lack of an experienced guiding hand to rein in all this youthful enthusiasm and a bunch of kids wanting to make their own thing and just really leave their mark. I mean, they wanted this to be their Snow White and it definitely did not turn out being that and it uh, that
4: just makes me sad <laughs>
6: that's that's always the depressing thing like behind every terrible film is definitely some people who had the highest possible hopes for it and yeah. really poured their heart into it which always sucks but i mean i mean this film's production woes either directly ended up causing or closely coincided with disney company structure changing a lot yeah Uh, like it would cost Ron Miller his job he was the chief executive at the time and Roy Disney kind of led a coup to replace him and uh, for the first time in the company's entire history new leadership was brought in from outside the studio Mm. and uh, uh, Michael Eisner came in with Frank Wells and they were entrusted of interested with basically turning the company around because it was in a pretty weak state uh, Eisner brought Katzenberg with him from Paramount. They both had been kind of working with film stuff over at Paramount, and um, the thing was though, these guys were these were Hollywood guys. These were very business type guys, this, which is not at all, which is very different from what Disney had been and how Disney had been run. And they didn't know animation. They didn't know how to work with artists. If you watch the documentary *Waking, Waking Sleeping Beauty*, it really, really shows how little they know how to communicate with artists. I think that's a story goes that Eisner uh, famously announced to the employees uh, upon being hired, like how happy he was to be at Disney, how he had grown up with all these Disney characters like heckle and Jekyll and mighty mouse. And just to a totally stone faced (laughs) response from the actual employees just, and to make tensions even worse, like one of Katzenberg's first actions when he got brought in was to move the animation department out of the Burbank studio where so much Disney history had been made. And, Move him out to this really lot, this really sketchy lot out in Glendale somewhere. And there was, there was a lot of dread and anxiety in the studio around this time. It's just, I mean, and to his credit, Katzenberg really threw himself into it. And he tried to learn as much as he could. But he still comes, but he, he and Eisner and all these other uh, Hollywood guys who came in, still always came at things from a really business perspective. And. This is the point in Disney history where it starts getting a lot more complex and hard to figure out like what motivated different creative decisions or just decisions in general with the company because before this you always had Walt who loved animation who wanted to like who was always in the animation department's corner and wanted to make the great animated films and he would when they Succeeded. He was right there with them when they failed. He was right there with them and trying to keep them and go- keep them going and making sure that it didn't get shut down because he loved this stuff. And like, I mean, and Eisner and Katzenberg would end up leading Disney Animation into what the greatest era of its entire history, arguably, yeah. unless the one we're in is probably starting to show itself to be a pretty great contender. But, but neither of those guys had Walt's passion or love for it. I mean, they weren't. Visionaries, either these were just Hollywood business guys, very and very so,
0: shrewd businessmen. Yeah. Right, so and the, very good at motivating people, even if it unfortunately did was very uh, aggressive in the way they did it.
6: Very much so, yeah. I mean, this is an era of butting heads and the eternal push pull between artists and businessmen, which is pretty much defines per, the production of feature animation today, too, for better mm-hmm. or worse. This basically set the stage for how the business of animation was run.
0: Yeah. So, and, it's um, notable that uh, uh, Lasseter, being in, uh, in charge a creative director at Disney, definitely helped usher in a new age where that creativity could actually be put to good use, rather
6: than Chicken Little. Definitely, yeah. that was a pretty that ended up being a pretty big shift. Yeah, I mean, but then again, uh, like as there are lots of little complaints I'll have about Katzenberg and Eisner, and lots of things that I'll want to credit them for too, as we get further on into this history. But it. Mm really, like, Black Cauldron definitely revealed a studio that needed some outside perspective. Yeah. Like, when like when Katzenberg came in, uh, Black Cauldron was already well underway, near finished, and he saw a cut of the film, and he decided that it was in dire need of some editing. It was found it way too violent. He found it just it really needed to be cut down. And one of the producers told him that you can't edit animation, which is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. But like I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of everything Eisner and Katzenberg did, but stuff like words like you can't edit animation reveals to me a studio that was in desperate need of some shaking up, because that it reveals some really entrenched, closed off, like, yeah, mentality and some rigid. Adherence well, the idea to the way being there, were I'm assuming
0: done. we've put the work into the animation. There's no way you can cut it out.
6: Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like you. You can edit animation. You can totally edit animation. You don't want to, because if you've had to edit something after the work was already done, then you have done it wrong, because that's the most expensive possible way to do it. You want to yeah. get all this editing stuff figured out before you go into production. Yeah. But to you can still edit it. And to work. Yeah. You can still edit it, though. And so, yeah, like some outside perspective was desperately needed. So I have
0: heard one dumber comment regarding animation. Sharon, you probably already know what this one is. It was uh, uh, an acquaintance, an associate of mine in college, uh, announced that, uh, that you couldn't re- like, that animated films weren't real films. That animated films didn't have directors oh, in the same way. <sighs> I mean, it took me about six seconds of just what to just say uh, Akira, and then just I couldn't even be bothered to carry on <laughs> arguing with him. <laughs> um, I could have carried on at the time. I think the Iron Giant had just come out. Um, But, uh, yeah, that's the most boneheaded statement I have ever heard regarding animation. Um, And the other thing about the Black Cauldron, despite everything they threw into it, it was beaten by...
6: The Care Bears.
0: The Care Bears. Did they just do the Care Bear stare until the Black Cauldron slunk off? (laughs) (laughs) Ugh. yeah
6: Okay. <clears throat> I don't blame Disney for trying to sweep this one under the rug
0: apparently they repurposed some of the assets to help make the Gummy Bears TV series so maybe it didn't amount to nothing somebody didn't actually ask me if we were going to cover Gummy Bears and we aren't but it's um, heartening to know that the uh, Disney cartoons like that and Tailspin and Chippendale, Rescue Rangers and DuckTales still resonate with uh, fans in their 30s now um, that's it for us this week to play us out here is Tomorrow is Another Day from The Rescuers performed by Shelby Flint
5: Come along Will there be sunshine shining Will we find a silver lining Come along Sing a song When today becomes tomorrow Will we find joy or sorrow, sing a song, is it wrong to put all our hopes together and wish for something better? i hey.